Matthew 5, uh, beginning at verse 1. This is the word of God. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Before we uh, consider this passage, let's pray. Father, we would ask that uh, in your uh, grace uh, today, uh, you would allow us to profit from your word. We would ask that your spirit would fill us in a rich and in a powerful way so that we can understand uh, the words of your son and also apply them properly and live them. Pray that you will uh, use uh, the words of your son to get a hold of our lives. For we ask it in his holy name. Amen. Now, for those of you uh, who may or may not remember, uh, the last couple of weeks, last two weeks, uh, I've been away uh, this last week uh, speaking at uh, a family conference uh, near Peterborough, and then the week before that uh, down in Pennsylvania uh, speaking to a kids' camp or at a kid's camp, rather, not to it, uh, speaking at a kid's camp. Uh, and so we got back after two weeks away, got back yesterday uh, around supper. So I'm a little done in, uh, in terms of energy. Uh, the highlight of the time, undoubtedly, was when my youngest group Bible study uh, witnessed a fist fight. Uh, but that's a story for another day. Uh, there were other uh, slightly less interesting things that took place, uh, but uh, the fist fight was pretty great. I'll tell you about that. <laughs> it actually really was. It was, it was quite, quite remarkable. Uh, so I'll tell you about that some other time, if I remember, which I might not. Uh, so this morning, I, I just want us to go through uh, this section of the Beatitudes uh, because they're so foundational uh, to not only starting out in the Christian life, but also to carrying on and following the Lord. Jesus sits down and in doing so adopts a posture of a teaching authority in his culture. So he sits down and so what he's saying next is to be taken as authoritative pronouncements to his disciples. And before we go through them, I just want to make three preliminary observations about the text. Number one, you'll notice that verse three has the blessing for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, as does verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is a literary device known as an inclusio. It's not that Jesus starts dispensing blessings, then runs out. 
until he goes back to the first one. Uh, he does this very intentionally. The reason that he begins with blessed, uh, theirs is the kingdom of heaven, and ends the same way, is because this functions in a literary sense as a parenthesis. That is, it binds everything in the middle together. And so what Jesus is doing here by using this technique is he's teaching you that you do not have the liberty to pick and choose out of this set the virtues and blessings that you may want and dispense with the ones you don't. It's a package deal. In that sense, it's like the fruit of the Spirit. You, you don't get to approach... The fruit of the Spirit is not plural. It is not the fruits of the Spirit. It is singular. It is the fruit of the Spirit. This is what the Holy Spirit produces. And so you can't say, well... You know, joy sounds pretty great, but I'm not all that interested in self-control. It just doesn't work that way. Just like here you can't say, well, I'd love to be comforted, but all this business about hungering and thirsting for righteousness is a bit much. I'll let that slide. It's a package deal. Jesus' disciples will be marked by all of these things. Second, uh, preliminary. Uh, the word blessed is sometimes translated uh, unhappily as happy. Uh, this is not the best way of translating this word today. So it's not happy are those who mourn for they'll be comforted. Happy are you when you are persecuted. Although some people want to sort of make it that way. The reason that's not a proper translation is that happiness today in our culture is very far removed from what Jesus would have meant by the word blessed. Uh, to us, happiness is a feeling which is really contingent on things like uh, circumstances, uh, environmental factors, and even internal factors like um, good digestion and just having you know, just one of those upbeat, cheerful personalities, which not all of us are blessed with. Uh, you know, some people, they just wake up early in the morning and they can fall out of bed happy. And those are the kinds of people who make the life miserable for everyone else. You know, so, so someone's happiness is someone else's misery. You know, that's just how things work. So we're not talking about being happy in a contemporary sense. We're talking about being deeply and richly blessed from heaven's perspective. What does it look like to be happy slash blessed from God's perspective? It's very different from what it will look like in a Western cultural perspective. Third and last for preliminaries. These blessings are probably all to be interpreted as partially temporal, that is partially here and now, but completely eschatological. That is, you will receive these blessings in down payment now, at times, but the fulfillment of these blessings awaits the new heavens and new earth. And so you can kind of oscillate back and forth between them. So does God, by his spirit, comfort his children now? Well, does he? Are you, but, but are you sure, though? He, he does. He does. But do God's children never mourn today? Not at all. Does, does, does this mean that um, someone you love will die and immediately you will feel no pain? Not at all. 
So does God bring comfort? Yes. But do we still mourn? Yes. Does God ever come in and remove all of the pain of shockingly painful situations, even over time? Not necessarily. And so in this world, there will be tears and there will be heartache. God does bring comfort to people in the here and now. And and thanks be to God that he does. But it's a mixed comfort. It's a comfort and peace in the midst of heartache and tears. However, a day is coming when the comfort is total. A day is coming when the comfort is complete. A day is coming when all mourning will be put away forever. And so these oscillate, you can go back and forth. They are, they are true in the here and now, partly. But they will be true ultimately in a consummated sense in the future. So, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You begin with this. Because this is the entranceway into being a disciple of Jesus Christ. If you do not recognize that you come to Christ as a spiritual beggar, then you will not have the open hands required to receive the gifts of his mercy and grace. So being poor in spirit does not mean that you hate yourself. Being poor in spirit does not mean that you unnecessarily beat yourself up as being worthless. But being poor in spirit does mean that you recognize that when you come to God, you do not come doing Him any favors. We do not come to God as if God needs us on His team in order to be successful. We don't come to God in a position of bargaining strength. We come to God bringing our brokenness our fractured being and our sin nature and all of the sins of omission and commission of which we are guilty and we present that to God. That's what we bring to the table. And God, in grace, blesses us. But we do not come from a position of strength. And so as long as we are coming to God as if somehow by our works or or gifts or abilities or resources or whatever it is, we can improve Him then we do, not, we, do not, we do not understand the basic reality of the kingdom of heaven. Which is that only the, the destitute spiritually are welcome at the door to come in. So we begin into the kingdom of heaven by recognizing we have no right to the kingdom of heaven. We, we begin to come to God with, first of all, recognizing that we don't deserve to come to God. So the only way to enter into the kingdom is by beginning with grace, not with ability or works. Now, this is worth, uh, it's worth a comment on what kingdom of heaven means, actually. Uh, I think in in our Western traditions, we tend to think of kingdom sort of as bound up with um, place or realm. So you might think, uh, you know, knights and castles and all those sorts of things. Uh, This side of uh, the life of Walt Disney, probably a lot of people might think of kingdom like the magic kingdom, you know, where you have that iconic castle. And so we tend to think of kingdom in terms of place, but that's not the, that's not the, the first reference to kingdom in the biblical culture. In the biblical culture, kingdom language referred to rule and reign more than place. 
So this isn't coming into a place. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for they enter a place. It's blessed are the poor in spirit, for they submit themselves to the rule and reign of God. That's what it means. To voluntarily put yourself under the authority of the king. This is why Jesus, his first message is repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He's not saying repent because I'm about to set up a palace. He's saying, repent, because the king is here. When the king is here, the kingdom is here. Repent, I'm right here with you. The king of kings is with you. Come under my rule and reign. Submit yourself to my authority. And so the poor in spirit are blessed because they submit themselves under the authority of the king of kings and lord of lords. Now, this biblically, in terms of a biblical trajectory, finds its great fulfillment in a fascinating way when the rule and reign of Christ sort of intersects and becomes coextensive, not just with a place, but with every place. So that in the new heavens and new earth, what you have is the sort of the, the, the spatial representation of the realm of God. Everything is under Christ. And so in the, the consummation in the future, what you end up with is the place, New Jerusalem, New Heavens, and New Earth, all of which is experiencing the perfect, beatific reign and rule of the King. And so we look forward to the Kingdom of Heaven in its manifestation as a very real physical, spiritual realm over which Christ is reigning. And you can only enter into it through grace. It's a gift. It's not given to you on the basis of your merit. Quite the opposite. So if you come thinking that you are spiritually meritorious, you will find that you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. It's not yours. The only people to whom the kingdom belongs are those who are poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. I just can't think that this has everything to do with physical emotional pain. If you hit your thumb with a hammer, which is something I would never do, being first of all far too coordinated, and second of all far too lazy to use a hammer, uh, to avoid all of that, you know, if, if God, or if you hit your thumb with a hammer and you're crying, God isn't going to magically make the pain stop. God isn't in the business very often of magically making pain stop. I'm not sure if you've realized that. Psychologically, emotionally, physically, God very rarely just shows up, snaps his fingers, and whatever you're grieving about all of a sudden doesn't bother you anymore. He doesn't usually inhibit the physical pain sensors of your body. He likewise doesn't usually inhibit that for your heart or for your mind. He usually just doesn't. Is this the type of mourning that non-Christians experience? Non-Christians grieve. They grieve the loss of a loved one. Non-Christians experience physical pain. Non-Christians experience family breakdown. Non-Christians experience all of those things. Is this a promise for anyone who mourns regardless of their relationship to Jesus? Well, no. 
So in that sense, although it's patient of a wide application, I think it has to be a little bit more narrowly focused. What is it that believers mourn about that no one else does? That's sin. I believe what Jesus is saying here is that if you are in the kingdom of heaven, if you begin to see things through God's eyes, all of a sudden you will see horrific injustice and pain and immorality. You will see things that are ways that they should not be. Some things which will actually be celebrated by culture and the world around you. And while the world rejoices, you mourn. The things the world celebrates, you grieve. Because when you begin to see things through God's perspective, all of a sudden, there's an awful lot of things that aren't worthy of celebration. All of a sudden, there's a lot of things that that are fundamentally wrong. This is why Jesus, the text is very clear in John 11. When Jesus weeps at Lazarus' tomb, he's deeply moved with anger. The, the Greek language surrounding Jesus' uh, Jesus' emotional responses is used of horses snorting in battle. It's sort of this, this metaphor of rage, trembling with anger. Jesus perceives that. It's not just the loss of his friend. He goes knowing he's going to raise his friend to life. He's not like crying because Lazarus is dead. He's going to see him and he's going to talk to him in two minutes. He knows that. The whole, the whole reason he went was to raise him from the dead. He's not mourning that he's never going to see his buddy again. So what is it? Why the anger and the tears when he knows he's going to raise Lazarus? Well, it's because death is fundamentally wrong. It is is a scourge in God's very good world because of sin. And so, so Jesus grieves. Christians ought to grieve over things that happen in our society. We're very selective. Uh, we, we, we wring our hands about sort of the social justice issues that, that we don't think we're guilty of. So, we will, we will wring our hands about, you know, grant denial, and we'll wring our hands about, you know, same-sex marriage, and we'll wring our hands about abortion and, and these various things, as long as we don't think it affects us too much. And yet, yet in our society... Um, a society that's, that's utterly awash in selfish consumerism. The, the church will, will barely live differently, let alone say anything. Uh, in a society characterized by utter lack of self-control and food consumption and gluttony, uh, the, the difference between the society and the church is, is negligible if there's any difference at all. Uh, in, these are... These are Today, these are such horrifically complex issues, I have to admit, an utter inability to even begin to know how to unravel. I have no idea what the solution is. None. But, but the shameful and continuing shameful treatment of indigenous people in our nation. And I, don't even, I have no idea. I have no idea how to even begin to address it. It's in so many generations. Where, where skills have been lost and lifestyles have been lost and, and, and horrific habits ingrained. And so how do you, how do you take at this point, how do you, how do you begin to, to help lift people up? I have no idea. But 
But surely, surely in our world there's a place for Christians to mourn, even if they don't know what to do. Surely, Christians ought to be a people whose hearts break, who have a social conscience, who care about the marginalized, who care about the poor, who care about the exploited, who care about the abused, who care about God's world precisely because he created it. Surely Christians should be bothered by sin more than anyone else on the face of the earth precisely because it's offensive to God and it's hurting people who are created as God's image bearers. If anyone cares about the world and people and God, it ought to be us. And if we do, we should mourn because God is so highly dishonored and people are so profoundly injured in our world today. Well, the promise is... If you mourn, God will comfort you. A little bit in this world, yes. But more, one of the great eschatological promises is that God himself will wipe away the tears from his people's eyes. This is a picture of of God himself like a nanny getting down on his knees at the level of the child who's crying and and with his own hand wiping away the tears from the cheeks. God himself will do that. Now, God's not going to do that for everyone. But God's going to do that for the people who mourn over the things that break his heart too. And God's, God's going to do that for the people who have a vision for both the things that that he delights in and the things that appall him. When we talk about IJM, the International Justice Mission, and, and trying to rescue some of these kids who are pressed into sex slavery uh, in the Philippines, it is unthinkable to either congratulate ourselves for being involved as if somehow it's awfully meritorious for us to care and write a check or to support and just know we're supporting but not really engage. The only right way to, the only right way the, o- the only way that can possibly honor God to be involved in a situation like that is to mourn. If there, isn't, if there isn't grief that this happens in our world, it hasn't been understood. Like, like To actually stop and think about what toddlers are experiencing at the hands of grown men. Think about that. And don't mourn. Think about that and be unaffected. Think about that and, and, and spend the afternoon on your phone. Like, just think about it. The world is outrageous. And a proper sensitive response is to mourn. Jesus says, if you're in the kingdom, blessed are the poor in spirit, for there is the kingdom of heaven. If you're in the kingdom, you'll mourn. The standards of the kingdom are not the standards of the world. But if you mourn, there's coming a day when God will make all things right and you'll see it. 
and you will rejoice in his justice. And he himself will comfort you for every tear that you shed. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Now, meekness is not weakness. It is strength and control and gentleness. Uh, It's putting other people first, not just looking out for yourself. It's actually trying to invest in people, uh, to use whatever God's given you to to try to lift other people up, to try to help them in whatever capacity and relationship that looks like, whatever configuration that is between you and them, to actually genuinely care about someone else more than yourself. Not to be proud and arrogant, not to use people. Uh, The meek will inherit the earth. Well, again, is that true now? Well, partly, uh, partly the meek just get trampled on in our world. Uh, I'm not sure if you've noticed that. Uh, sometimes it is, it is the brash and the arrogant uh, who are oppressive and exploitive, and they're the ones who amass all kinds of stuff and land and all of the rest. In fact, in the prophets, it's often the righteous who are trampled down. It's the righteous who are, in, who are, who's having, who are having their inheritance taken away from them. So how is it that the meek inherit the earth? Well, at one level, Jesus says, listen, if you're my disciple, then in this world, you will receive a hundred times in terms of brothers and sisters and land. You know, how does that work? Well, because this is your family. There's, there's a couple hundred brothers and sisters. You're part of this church. That's your family. And, and as a result... Um, their stuff is, is kind of your stuff. Kind of. Kind of. But it is. Um, I end up homeless. You have to invite me in. You do. So I should pray I don't end up homeless. Uh, so when Mary was saying that they used to pay the pastor $10 a week, and I should be so glad that that's not my salary. I am. Awfully, awfully nice that it's been doubled over all those decades. Uh, but, you know, but if I can't pay my bills, you know, I'm, I'm coming to you. Uh, your, your house is my house uh, because we're family. Uh, we, we take care of one another. So in one sense, we, we do actually inherit far more than what we have on our own. But more than anything, one day you actually are going to have the whole earth. And not just the whole earth. You're going to have the whole heavens and earth, and not just this one. You're going to have the new heavens and the new earth. That's your inheritance. That's what you get. So the meek inherit the earth, kind of now, and kind of now also because this is our Father's world, and we're the only ones who actually understand what the world is. But more so, the new heavens and new earth, that's us. That's ours. That's, that's, that's ours. We inherit it. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Now, we too often think of righteousness language through the lens of Paul. And that's good if you're reading Paul, but very unhelpful if you're reading it anywhere else. Paul will often talk about righteousness in terms of the perfect righteousness of God through Christ by which we can stand before God on the day of judgment and be saved. So it's justifying imputed righteousness, the spotless righteousness of Christ, the righteousness of God given to us. That's very helpful. It's very necessary to know. 
But more often than not, righteousness language in the Bible does not refer to the righteousness of God as a perfect gift. It's referring to subjective human righteousness, that is just being in the right on the basis of some type of moral standard. This is why Job and the psalmist are forever asking God to judge them on the basis of their righteousness. They're not saying they're sinlessly perfect. They're not. What they're doing is they're saying, what I'm being accused of, I am innocent of. Judge me on the basis of that. I am in the right on this standard. So for those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, this isn't those who hunger and thirst for the perfect righteousness of Christ. This is those who genuinely want to be righteous. This is they want to live rightly. They want to do what's right. On the basis of God's, God's standard. They want to do, they want to be on the right side of God's law. They want to please God. They don't want to sin. They want to honor him. If you hunger and thirst for that, that is, those are very compelling drives. Hunger and thirst. Do you, hung, do you crave doing what's right? Do you crave doing what's right the way you crave food and water? If you hunger and thirst, if you have a compelling drive for rightness, then you will be filled. In fact, this is a, this is a very interesting word. This is a word which, which actually goes well with our gluttonous society. The word filled is used for fattening up animals for the slaughter. You can actually translate it sort of stuffed. If you hunger and thirst for righteousness, God will stuff you full of it. You know, this is, this is like a spiritual buffet. You know, you want righteousness, you will have it. Not just a little bit. God's not going to give you an hors d'oeuvre. God is not going to give you a tiny taste of it. God is going to stuff you full of it until you are bursting with righteousness. Now, does anyone actually want that? Do you want to not just be a little bit in the right, but radically filled with righteousness? You know, there, 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 there is no calorie count to righteousness, right? It doesn't go to your thighs or anywhere else. Uh, it's actually good for your heart. You know, it's, it's the one thing, the more of the better. And here's a promise. If you want it, God will give it to you. Apparently in spades. But do you want it? Or do you hunger and thirst for the things that cause God to mourn? The truth of the matter is you will be filled with something. It just depends what that is. What are your cravings? What do you desire? Blessed are the merciful for they will be shown mercy. Mercy combines feeling and action. It's, it's compassion and forgiveness. It, it acts to alleviate suffering. So you see someone suffering and you're actually moved in compassion to do something to help them. Well, if you're hungering and thirsting for righteousness, you will be filled partly now, but obviously ultimately new heavens and new earth where, you'll never, where you will never sin again. Same with mercy. God will show you mercy now, and he does. And he may bring agents of mercy into your life now. 
but ultimately the mercy that you will experience when God climactically acts to alleviate your misery. And, and again, if you're tracking this carefully, the misery that you want alleviated is not physical, it's spiritual. And, and, and so God in mercy acts to take care of your spiritual problem not treating you as your sins deserve. And so we experience that now. We are already under the mercy of God now as His children. But far more in the new heavens and new earth, we will experience the consummation, the fullness of His acts of mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. This is pure in heart, in the deepest part of who you are. This is not the same as hypocritical purity. Uh, this is not the same as putting on you know, a, a veneer of piety. This doesn't mean that, that if you can impress other people and make them think that you're pure, then you are. This is God looking into your very heart and knowing exactly who you are, all the thoughts and inclinations of your mind and heart and soul and spirit. And in fact, not only that, this is God knowing uh, all of the things that you yourself psychologically can't bear to admit, and so you, you revise and interpret and, and justify, and all, all, those, all those psychological games we play with ourselves, sometimes not even knowing that we're doing it. Now God says, if you're pure in who you really are in the deepest place, the promise is that you will see me. Again, this is true now. Those who are pure in heart do see God today. They perceive Him. They hear His voice. They see His works. They walk with the Spirit. They know His fellowship. They know the voice of their shepherd. They know His touch. They see God. But as Paul says, but now we see through a glass darkly. That is, now we see in part. Then, consummation, we will see fully. This is one of those amazing promises in Revelation, is that in the end, we will see God. The God who is invisible. How do you see the God who is invisible? I don't know. But you will. There will be some sense. And who knows, maybe, maybe, maybe... In the new heavens and new earth. This is just speculation. I have no idea. You know, maybe in the new heavens and new earth, we will actually have new senses to go along with the ones that we currently have. I have no idea. Maybe, maybe there will be ways of, of intuition or even perception that we can't even imagine right now, but which will be real then. I, I don't know. But somehow we are going to see God. The beatific vision lost in who God is. We will perceive Him. Because on that day, we will be in a consummated sense made pure in heart. We will actually be completely pure in heart. Which if you are poor in spirit, you recognize you can't even begin to imagine what that will be like. You can't even begin to imagine it. What will it be like to be pure in heart? I have no idea. Not, not, in, not in, 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 a, in an absolute sense. I can't, I, I literally can't imagine. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they'll be called children of God. Jesus is the Prince of Peace. So his subjects should make peace too. The King of Kings of the Kingdom is a King of Peace. 
if his followers are in the kingdom, they should have those priorities. Now, to be a peacemaker, the reason that they're called sons of God or children of God uh, is because it's like father, like son. This is functional sonship. If your father is a peacemaker, then you ought to be a peacemaker too. So, like father, like son, that's the principle here. If you make peace, then you will be called a child of God because you resemble your father. Now, peace is not merely the cessation of hostility. It's not just being neutral. Uh, we, we settle far too easily uh, for things that are okay but aren't great. So this doesn't mean just, well, we won't be hostile to people. You can have a ceasefire where you do nothing to ever bless someone, but you just don't shoot them anymore. That's not, that's not peace, though. Peace is making things right. Peace is sort of this holistic harmony. Uh, peace is like Eden, where things are what they ought to be. And so those who not only don't stir up strife and conflict and war, but those who actually create harmony are like God, because God is a God who creates harmony. He reconciles people together. And then lastly, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Just before you lose touch with reality and think this is nothing but a walk in the park, an improvement in your life in every possible way, the reality is the citizens of the world will treat the citizens of the kingdom, if they resemble the king at all, they will treat their citizens of the kingdom the way they treated the king. And how was that? If you look like this, Someone somewhere has to hate your guts. Or you don't look like this. Or you don't know anyone. But at some point, there will be people who don't like you because they don't like the gospel. The world does not like the gospel. The world does not like the king. The world does not like the kingdom because the kingdom challenges all the petty tyrants and all the petty ways of living that people in this world want to continue to live in and like. Blessed are you when you are persecuted. That's how they treated the prophets. That's how they treated the son. Persecuted because of righteousness. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. So there's these two things. First, persecuted because of righteousness. Second, because of me. They're sort of connected, obviously. So you're in the right. People hate that when they're in the wrong. You're following Jesus. People hate that when they've rejected Jesus. Now, something that's very, very important, this utterly needs to be understood. This is not, blessed are you when you're persecuted for any reason. This blessed are you when you're persecuted because of righteousness, because of me. There are a number of Christians who believe that they are persecuted for righteousness when they're actually just simply and quite naturally not liked because they're jerks. And so when they evangelize in their workplace, instead of actually doing their job, when they're running around evangelizing, they're doing so with, without even the faintest little tiny bit of tact. And so if you're gratuitously offensive in your mannerisms, then don't be surprised if people don't like you. They won't. But then don't go running off proud that you're persecuted because of righteousness. You're not. You're persecuted because of your personality. 
okay? or, or, or whatever. I mean, we just need to be honest about that. And, and so we need to make sure in the workplace or wherever it is, if we are testifying for Christ, that we're doing so in such a way that people can actually not like us because of the message, not because of our own personality and how we're communicating the message. It's not the same thing. You need to make really sure, Lord, help me to be a vessel who represents you well so that if people reject the message, it's because they're rejecting the message and not rejecting me as the messenger. Blessed are you when you are persecuted because of righteousness. Blessed are you when you are persecuted because of me. Not because of you, but because of me. Paradoxically, rejoice and be glad. Because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. If you are persecuted for the right things, you likely won't be happy, but you will be blessed. And the reward that you will have is so great that even now it can give you resources of rejoicing and being glad. This is a whole package. You start with brokenness and grace but you move through virtue and spiritual characteristics, which includes incredible blessing and pain in this world, and more blessing than you can possibly imagine in the world to come. That's what Jesus calls you to. Authoritatively, he sits down and says, listen, here's what it looks like to be part of the kingdom. Are you like this? Do you want to be like this? There's no other way. This is how you start. This is how you grow. This is how it ends. But this is what it means to be my disciple. There's no other way. And there's no other way to be blessed from heaven's perspective than this. Blessed are they who are like this, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven and all of the blessings pertaining thereto. I'm going to ask our musicians to come and lead us in our closing song.